reading to you Matthew 11, two ver verses 2 through 11. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there is not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. The word of the Lord, thank you for that reading, Shelley. The kids are invited to Kids Church in the Library. Thank you, Emily, for teaching today. We are in our third Sunday of Advent together, and one of the ways in which we tell that we're in the third Sunday is by the number of candles lit, in which uh, Miss Ghost is lit for us this morning. But you'll notice, and Kelly asked me, do I explain stuff? Because I don't often explain enough stuff, and so why do we light the candles? Well, we're counting down, in some sense, to Christmas Eve, and so we light one candle for each Sunday, and... Um, uh, on Christmas Eve, we light a white candle, which is sort of the Christ candle, which we sort of move towards this. And the, the candles have been given various things over the year. It used to be heaven, hell, judgment, and second coming. Um, but the 1950s came, and that was seemed to be too dark, and so now I think it's peace, joy, hope, and love. Um, we should probably blame the 60s, not the 50s. Um, sorry, Donna. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, that's sort of what it is, but if you notice, this Sunday we lit a pink candle. Now this, only like four people will get. Sierra, I hope you're one of them. That on the third Sunday of Advent, we light pink. Has anybody seen Mean Girls? Like one person, have you seen Mean Girls? Yes. What day of the week do they wear pink? Is it Wednesdays? Wednesdays. On Wednesdays, we wear pink. Is, uh, this theme, and this is a mean click. I don't want to explain too much in this photo. It's mean click girls, and they wear pink on Wednesday, and that's the thing. But it was funny to see this this week. On the third Sunday of Advent, we liked the pink candle. Uh, uh, it was based on the high school where you grew up, so. Yeah, it was based on the type of emptiness and shallowness of the suburb of Chicago that I grew up in. <laughs> and the vapidness of that culture. Now you've just triggered me, John. <laughs> Into darkness I descend. Um, was it the same for you? I wore no. a uniform. You wore, oh, you went to private school. Catholic. Yes, okay, well. Um, then the, the third Sunday of Advent is the Sunday we light the pink candle. And it comes from a Latin phrase, uh, which I won't try to pronounce, but it means joy. Is that this is sort of the Sunday we turn from that season of darkness and trial and preparation and sort of allow for a little bit of joy into this season. 
This is often the time where uh, churches will begin to sing a little bit more Christmassy music. It's the time in which you will sort of begin to see um, more sort of celebration of Christmas within the congregation, that, that we've sort of turned a corner at this point. As we've talked about before, Advent is sort of a penitential season. It's a season in which we bring ourselves to God. It used to be a season of fasting and preparation for this feast of Jesus coming amongst us. And so what we do is we sort of allow for some joy along the journey. What I think it can remind us, this candle of joy in the world today, is that it is God who gives us joy. It is not that the world is, is feasting and celebrating and providing all this excitement and entertainment nonstop <coughs> from Thanksgiving to Christmas. But for us, it gives us a chance to see that God is the one who prepares the times for us. God is the one who brings us into joyous shouting. And so that is why on the third Sunday of Advent, we light the pink candle. Um, but as we've been talking about our congregation and our life together this season, we've talked about how this room has a story, or every room has a story. And one of the things that we're trying to imbue into the story of this room is that we try to center ourselves on communion and who God is amongst us, and to bring ourselves together in prayer and well. And so this quote from C.S. Lewis, I thought, brought together one, um, how it is that God meets us in bread and wine, and how it is that God meets us in prayer. C.S. Lewis says, prayer is either a sheer illusion or a personal contact between embryonic, incomplete persons. By that, C.S. Lewis means us, and the utterly concrete person who is God. Prayer in the sense of petition, asking for things, is a small part of it. Confession and penitence are its threshold. Adoration is sanctuary. The presence and vision of enjoyment of God is bread and wine. It is in it God shows himself to us. What Lewis is, is sort of saying in his vision of prayer here is prayer is contact with something that's beyond and more stable and more um, aware of us and close to us that knows us deeper than we know ourselves. And so while in contemporary society it seems like we often think of prayer as just asking things of God, um, just asking for God to meet us, there's actually this bigger movement to prayer, which concludes this confession and penitence, it's adoration, and this presence that God comes to us. Well, I had a prayer class in seminary, which sounds as boring as it is, um, not because prayer is boring, but because teaching it is boring, I think. It's hard to get people um, brought into that. You do prayer. You, analyzing prayer sort of defeats the point of prayer. It's, is being brought into prayer. But, but the professor used to talk about how 90% of prayer for us is sitting in silence, is allowing God to come and meet us, allowing God to open up the scriptures for us, allowing God to be near to us. It's not just dabbling on it like the pagans do, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, but to actually expect that God meets us there, that there's presence that comes. So it is for us, we've been doing prayer together on Wednesday mornings here. We have a sheet for prayer at home during Wednesday mornings. If you haven't gotten one, I still have some printed in the back. But it's this way in which we can sort of open ourselves to hearing from God, to having God come close to us, to having God be presence to us as God is presence in bread and wine, is what it says. But this is our third Sunday of Advent, and it's our second John the Baptist Sunday. Now, the first Sunday of Advent, what we did was we looked at this sort of apocalyptic sort of teaching from Jesus, which calls out this second coming. 
So Advent, we talk about Advent a little bit in culture. It's like the advent of something, something is appearing, right? Um, and what Advent uh, means for us in the Christmas season is that we both look forward and backwards. This is how I tried to capture it the first week, a little advanced, um, is that we look both in my awesome drawing skills, um, that if we look forward to, to Jesus' return when he comes riding on a horse and he returns and sets the world to rights. And we also place ourselves, and I think it's helpful when we think of placing ourselves in the second place, is we place ourselves in the position of Israel awaiting God with us, awaiting the incarnate one to come amongst us. And so in Advent season, we both look future and back. And what that draws us, I think, deeper into is the presence of our lives. As we look back at what God has done in Israel and Jesus, how God has rescued his people, brought them out of Egypt, and then come to us in this Messiah we hear about in these stories, and how we look forward to the reconciliation of all things, the new creation that God's going to bring. And um, uh, we sing it, and my soul cries out, for the world is about to turn. And so Christians, as we sit in the middle of this, we have that foretaste of what is to come, and yet we know it is not complete yet. And we live in that space in between the times. But this Sunday, we I, I often use, and we can put this quote up again, this quote from Bonhoeffer about how Advent is like sitting in a prison cell. A prison cell is a good analogy for Advent. One waits, one hopes, one this is, does this or that, but ultimately negligible things, the door is locked and can only be opened from the outside. That if we sit and wait in the space for God to come and be with us, it's like this, this place of sitting in a cell. And the help that's going to come to us, that's going to lift us up, that's going to bring new life, has to come from the outside. That we can do things in the meantime in the cell, but we need the help that goes from the exterior to us. And as we've mentioned, Bonhoeffer here is sitting in a, in a Nazi prison cell um, when he writes these words. So he's not using this lightly. But this Sunday, if you were listening to what Shelley read, somebody else joins us in the prison cell. It is John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who we heard from last week, um, preparing the way for Jesus. This week we jump forward, and he is sitting in a prison cell himself, the prison who's been captured by Herod and placed into the cell. And what he does is he sends Jesus' disciples to go ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come, or is there one that's coming after you? Are you the one who's come to rescue us, or is there one after you? Are you the one to come, or should we expect someone else? I like, uh, at first I didn't like this reading. I've preached the lectionary reading for Advent before, but never this one from Matthew's Gospel. And I was like, this is so weird. What is going on, jumping to Levin, in this scene with John the Baptist? He was so certain last week. We prepared ourselves to repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. John's opening words of his ministry, Jesus' opening words of his ministry, that this is what is coming. And now we hear from John, hey, are you the one we are expecting, or are we waiting for someone else? John's disciples go up to Jesus, and they ask this question. Now, I think... It's helpful for that cell imagery again to say that we are the ones who sit in this time waiting. Jesus is present with us, has come. 
And yet, is he the one who will tear down people from their throne? Is he the one who will restore creation? Is he the one who will bring life back? Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? I think this is a huge question to sit with, because it's our question as well. Is Jesus the one whom we expected, whom is God with us, who we see bringing about the reconciliation of the world in his ministry, or are we waiting for someone else? Now I think of, of this in my own life, because we have this way of saying that the kingdom is real, but in the meantime, and, and you can see this in, in Luke's gospel, uh, we'll, we'll hit on a couple different things. We try to prepare our own sort of messiahs, too. I think in many ways in the modern world, we get to hedge our bets. Jesus is the one to come, but I need to save a lot of money for retirement, is one of the ways we think about it. Not that you shouldn't save money for retirement, but we get this sort of like, we need to build this one. Jesus is the one who is to come, who brings purifying fire to restore my life, but I still need my pockets of sin and enjoyment in the meantime. Jesus is the one who's going to restore all these things, and yet um, I look to the medical industrial complex for my place of help and salvation. I can't accept that he's the one who's going to restore things. It's Christmas season that, that we can sort of begin to make our own ways. Jesus is the one who's to come. It is his incarnation on earth that we are going to celebrate but we might as well have some fun in the meantime and buy lots of stuff that we're going to throw away in the next six months for our kids. Guilty as charged. <laughs> but we get to prepare our own sort of ways of thinking about this. And, and as I've joked before, everybody's favorite season is political season is coming upon us. We have this other temptation to think that that's where restoration will come to. And so as I was studying for the sermon this week, this is a story from... Frederick Dale Buhner, who was a missionary in the Philippines, and he talks about this looking for somebody else. He says, one form that subtle looking for somebody else took in our time, a form which with I as a missionary became acquainted with through mainly a progressive wing of the Catholic Church in the Philippines in the 60s and 70s went roughly like this. Jesus brought eternal salvation, but he did not tend to give the program for national liberation. He expected the near end of history and was not in the business of giving political solutions. But history has continued and not come to an end. The Christian is therefore free to adopt those scientific tools and methods that will serve his people's social, political, and economical liberation at any given time and place. And the ones that took place in this culture, they called Marxism, Leninism, Mao Zedong, thought provides the concrete scientific means to answer the temporal solution, not eternal questions of oppressed people. Thus, it was argued that the conscious Christian will look to Jesus Christ for his eternal liberation and to contemporary Marxism for his temporal liberation. The organization Christians for the Natural Liberation in the Philippines therefore took a twofold salvation, a spiritual one from Jesus Christ, for this is what he thought came, they came to give, and a temporal one from what was called the Marxism, these is an abbreviation. But this double vision did not work. No one can look for two messiahs. He says, Barabbas and Jesus. Barabbas is a, the zealot in the gospel, and Jesus is the one who is crucified. No one can look for two messiahs, for one will always eclipse the other. And in the continuing experience in the Philippines, the one eclipsed was Jesus. Jesus is either the fully competent liberator, or he is nothing at all. 
Now you could, what Bruder saw in his time is this fusion of Marxism, Leninism, and Mao Zedongism. Well, you can insert whatever you want into that. Capitalism will bring about the kingdom. Republicanism will bring about the kingdom. Democratism will bring about the kingdom. Uh, democracy will bring about the kingdom. You can resort whatever you want into that. But what happens if, is if you inappropriately put those in, as messiahs to solve our contemporary problems, is the other one always tends to win out. Jesus ends up crucified again. But when he confronts power, he appears to go silent, and yet seems to radiate with power as well. And so it's for us, are we, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? We ask that question in our own time as well. Are you the one who is to come, or are we going to get somebody else? Are we going to get the most out of life? Is our militarism going to secure us? Is our medicine going to secure us? Are politics going to secure us? Is my own consumerism and life choices, thank you for bringing up my high school, Jonathan, because that's evident of that time, going to be where I find salvation and security? Or am I going to trust into the one who it is to come? The temptation that's strong for us as it was strong for John and his disciples to say, this doesn't look as strong as I want it. Jesus didn't solve and give us the guarantees that we wanted in the ways that we have. And so Jesus says he is, when asked this question, he says, you idiot, of course I am, why don't you have faith? That's exactly not what he says. He tells John's disciples to go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Jesus doesn't defend himself at this moment. He doesn't bring up his credentials. He doesn't bring up that John should know these things as he prepared the way. But he says, report back what you hear and see. The first thing I want to say about this is, report back what you hear and see is a powerful way to phrase this. Matthew's gospel has this way, and, and many of the gospels use this phrase from the book of Isaiah in, in this section, amen, uh, so, uh, uh, this section uh, of scripture, it, it alludes to this teaching from Isaiah, and this whole section is rich with Isaiah. That is near quote from what Matthew read for us during the, the worship time, is that go back what you hear and see. One of the questions that Jesus proposes is that there are people that, well, though they hear, um, uh, though hearing, they're deaf, and though seeing, they're blind to what God is doing. For does God to reveal, for God to reveal these things to us? There's almost a question of like, if we go back and report what we hear and see, it doesn't mean that people will believe us. It's go back and give testimony to what God has done. Go back and tell about what the kingdom looks like as it inbreaks in life. This is one of the things that I think, unfortunately for um, us today, is that when we talk to people about our faith, it's more we move to more convincing, which may be helpful, but oftentimes it's not, instead of testimony. What is it to be a Christian? Well, to go back to report what you hear and see that the blind have received sight, that the lame have walked, that those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. 
Jesus says, look at the seeds of the kingdom of the world and tell John about that. Tell John that the kingdom is breaking out amongst the poor, even. That this is the sign of the inbreaking kingdom of God that's coming amongst us. The reassurance doesn't come from sort of, when we ask this question, it doesn't come from this sort of like, um, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. When we're tempted by this, it doesn't come, the solution doesn't come from an argument about how Jesus is divine. It doesn't come from the way of evidencing that this is clearly who Jesus was. It comes from, have you seen the signs of the kingdom and what Jesus has brought out in life? Have you seen testimony that God has done mighty works? Have you seen the inbreaking of the kingdom in the world? And it's this way that the church is a foresaste of that kingdom. That we are sort of the beachhead of what God wants to do in the world. And what Jesus is saying, partially in this passage, is, it goes on, is that Jesus is stealing from the darkness of the world. People who are blind that are left out are regaining their sight. They're being restored. The lame who can't walk can go walk again. They're being restored those who have leprosy, those who can't participate in the, in the life of the temple, those who are pushed to the margins of society, have been cleansed and are brought back into participating in society again, are being cleansed. The deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. That these are the signs of new creation and the restoration that God wants to do in the world. God is taking from the things that take from us and placing them in the place of restoration. And yet, these things seem small. And so Jesus reminds them afterwards, blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me. How is it that this one comes and heals some people, does this, raises some people from the dead, and yet death still seems to reign? For John is still in prison. We ourselves are still locked in the time where it becomes possible for us to look for other messiahs, to look for other solutions to our ills and aches, to fill our emptiness with more and more things. So Jesus says that blessed are those who don't stumble upon me, but that can see and hold this near to them, that this light that has shined in the world is one that doesn't diminish but has come to us. Now, this is even more uh, what uh, Katrina read at the start of the sermon, Mary's song. Uh, the, the, the tense in that is great, because Mary uses all future tense for the work that's going to happen. Or, sorry, past tense. God has done these things. I failed English class in eighth grade. Um, <laughs> the uh, past tense for what's happened. She says that these things have already come. Jesus hasn't even been born yet. And she's saying that this is what God has done. One of the ways I like to think about this, those of us who have glasses on, is that we have, as Christians, this sort of bifocal vision. We have this way in which we see the world, and it's the way that everybody sees the world. It's our default setting for seeing the world. But what happens with God's Spirit, what happens that that Mary sees rightly and what Jesus is calling out here is that we're given a second set of lenses to see the world as it is restored by God. 
Mary doesn't need to see these things happen, for she knows that it is within God's plan and time. And with that second set of vision, she can see that that's going to happen. And I think the real challenge for Christians is to see that the, that the glasses are actually the way that is blind. And the way that our default way of seeing the world is bent on lies. To see that these things have already fallen. Their power no longer reigns over us. That God's kingdom has broken out here because in the final analysis, the thing we look off to in the distance and Advent, the restoration of all things, those things won't be and will cease to be in the world. And God will restore and bring us back to life in the ways in which he has planned. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. I preach this, and yet it is scandalizing to think that that's the way we see the world. That what seems to have victory now, we call weak. And what is, appears to be weak is strong. It's hard to do that. I mean, this is why I grew to love this as I prepared this sermon. Is the question of, are you the one to come, or should we wait for somebody else, is a very, very important, deep question that anybody who thinks you can answer so fast, of course he's the one to come. Didn't sit with the question long enough. This is hard work. And that being hard work is the work of faith, is the work of what God is doing amongst us. Jesus ends this teaching before the disciples go back, and he continues into another teaching um, by telling a short story about John. That John is um, the greatest of this age. That he's the one who prepared a way for me. That if you, and Jesus has a sense of looking at John, that if you were to pile up all the Old Testament prophets, the that the peak of them is John the Baptist. John is surely great. Nobody born of a woman is greater than John. Which is interesting because, you know, born from above is the language she uses for Christians. Is that we come from a different place. But whoever is the least in the age that Jesus is bringing about is greater than he. Now this is a word for us. The people who stand in the new age of what God has done are greater than John the Baptist. Who feels like that today? <laughs> and yet this is what Jesus says to us. In our prayer of confession, um, in the words of absolution, the one that always hits me hard is that Christ prays for you answer yes to Jesus is the one who has promised and that we don't wait for someone else to come. It's for us to hear and believe that by virtue of standing in his kingdom we're greater than even the greatest of what we've done in the last age. That this turning has opened a new space up for us. Christians um, have a great virtue of humility and a great virtue of, of modesty and yet, oftentimes, we don't believe what Christ says to us as much as we should. 
that you are the greatest, greater than what was all before this by being able to stand in this kingdom. And so, as you begin to study this text, there's a big debate, which is really nerdy. Many of you may have thought of this question is, did John die? And like for the first, I don't know, thousand years of church history, it was like, no, John didn't doubt. He needed his disciples to transfer their allegiance from Jesus to, uh, from John to Jesus. He needed them to become part of the kingdom he was bringing about. And then it turns into, then we start to psychologize John, particularly later, and then it turns into the, no, John doubted he was human, faith and doubt are, are not opposites, they can live off each other, this and the other, which is all true, don't hear me saying that faith can't incorporate doubt. Um, and yet, what clearly is happening here is not for us to question, did John doubt? But it's an object lesson for us to hear what Jesus is doing in the world. John's doubt, we can treat as interesting or as disinteresting as we want, but it's for us to hear this news again. And so the quote on the back of the bulletin for this week, in the depths of his prison, in the faith of death, death might and must John the Baptist hear again from Jesus himself what he has already heard from Jesus. We may and must also hear it again. This is what we have to learn from this question. Are you the one who has become, or should we wait for someone else? For us to hear of the signs of the kingdom. Is for us to gain the report and to see and to testify to one another what God has done in our lives. So that we can hear that whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Let us pray. Uh, this Sunday in Advent, your great prophet from of old asked the question for us. Is Jesus the Messiah for us? Is Jesus the coming one? Is he the one whom we can put our hope and trust? And that means our lives, our work, our bank accounts, our joy. Be the one who is going to bring this about. And so we hear and see what has happened. The blind have received sight, the lame have walked, the dead have been raised, and that Christ is extinguishing the darkness of the world around us as we await the fulfillment of the age. God, for those of us here, May we hear of the greatness you have for us. That this coming kingdom, we see the first fruits of in Jesus' ministry, and then the church to become the beachhead of that news in the world so that we can testify the power and the goodness of what you've done. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.